Greetings, everyone. I'm so glad you're here today joining me on Satiate, the Boulder Nutrition Podcast. I'm Sue Van Rays, your host, functional nutritionist, food psychology specialist, and founder of Boulder Nutrition. I also lead women's wellness and yoga retreats, both locally and internationally. You can find out more about me at bouldernutrition.com. My inspiration with Satiate is to offer you functional nutrition, food psychology, and well being insights, to share with you case studies and stories that can act as salve for your soul, to share with you some of my most favorite special guests and experts from all over the country and to offer you an opportunity to satiate your body, mind, heart, and soul. If you love this podcast, I would be so grateful to have you head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. That will help me get the podcast out into the world to the listeners who need it most. So onward with today's special guest. I want to take a moment and introduce to you Elizabeth Benton, author of Chasing Cupcakes and owner of Primal Potential. Elizabeth Benton was depressed, deeply in debt, and obese. As a nutrition expert and educator who binged on junk food every time she put gas in her car, she felt like a fraud and a failure. Desperate to start living her true purpose in the world, she decided to believe in her potential rather than her past. She lost 150 pounds, paid over $130,000 off in debt, and remains debt-free as a successful entrepreneur today. Through her platform of podcasts, coaching, and live events, She has fueled her deepest struggles into a burning passion to help people create transformations and live more fulfilled lives. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Satiate Elizabeth. I'm so glad to have you here. And I'm so excited to talk about your work and your book and all that you do in the world. So thank thank you you for for having me. It's such a pleasure. Uh, A a friend of mine introduced me to your book and said, you really need to read this. So um, it was such a great opportunity to connect with you this way. Yeah. So just so the listeners know, your book is called Chasing Cupcakes how one broke fat girl transformed her life and how you can too. That's, that's quite the subtitle. <laughs> um, <laughs> covers a so, lot. <laughs> yeah, we will get into that, of course. Um, but tell me, you also are the founder of Primal Potential. Yep. And tell us a little bit about the background of your work and, and what you do with your clients. Like, what are you doing in the world in this Primal Potential platform these days? Absolutely. So this all really started for me as, as cliche as it probably sounds, it started for me as a kid because I was an overweight baby, an overweight child, and I probably would have grown out of the excess weight, except for the fact that it became a very emotional issue in my house. My mom, who is and always has been very, very thin, tall and thin, she felt that my excess weight was a reflection on her as a parent. So from a very young age, like, you know, preschool, there was a lot of pressure on me to lose weight. And that over the years became a very emotional and a psychological thing. And there was a lot of shame and a lot of uh, food restriction. And then of course, as a kid, food overindulgence, because if mom wasn't looking, I wanted to get my hands on everything that wasn't allowed when she was looking. And my weight was really the center point of my life for uh, the first few decades, because I had a lot of shame and I had a very strong desire to fit in. And to me, fitting in meant not being overweight. 
but because of the emotional issues around food, I was just getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And I felt like it defined everything. It defined every relationship I was in. It defined my career. It defined everything. And through, which I'm sure we'll get into, through some personal changes and getting out of debt very specifically, I finally overcame what felt like this all-consuming battle with food. And then I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to tell people about it. I wanted to share about it. And the mental work, the thought work, the mindset work that really made it possible. And that's when Primal Potential started. So I have a podcast. It's called Primal Potential. I started it in 2014. Um, And I used to work with clients specifically around food issues years ago. But after working with thousands of clients, I realized that for them, just like for me, it's really about even if it manifests in food or it manifests in weight or it manifests in spending or any number of other things, it comes back to how we think and how we make decisions and how honest we are with ourselves. So that's really the type of work that I do with my clients is mindset work. And that's such a buzzword lately, like mindset. And I think a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their heads around, well, what does that mean? And what does that look like in the day to day? And I like to think of it as the process of becoming a better thinker. And when we do that, we become a better decision maker, we improve our finances, we improve our relationships, we improve our health, and it's no longer a calories thing or a diet thing or a discipline thing. We just make better decisions. I love it. There's so much just in that beginning part of what you said that I want to kind of go back into. First, when I was reading your book, and I just think this is an interesting place to start. Um, and I was reading your story and your relationship with your mom was obviously challenging and it fed into a lot of, of your negative patterns, Mm -hmm. but there was one part towards the end of the beginning introduction of your book, where you actually said that you were able now to talk about these feelings with your mom. Yeah. And I think that was a really, um, inspiring part for me to read because, you know, when we look back and we see how things were in our childhood or the things that were out of balance or out of alignment or the different mixed messages we got from our parents or our culture or our community, you know, can we repair those to a, to a point where we feel um, like there's been some uh, alignment come back into those relationships if, yeah. if it is a relationship. So could you speak to that a little bit about how you repaired that with your mom or how you can speak about that with your mom? Yeah, I think that when I look at what made it hard for so long, what made it tense and why I felt so embarrassed all the time, a lot of it was my sense that she was judging me. And she would probably, if she was here right now, she would probably say, you know, she was, she probably wouldn't use that word, but evaluating my weight. And if I had gained weight or lost weight, you know, especially as I went off to college and that sort of thing. But all of it was wrapped in shame for me, feeling like I wasn't meeting her expectations, feeling like I was letting her down if I hadn't lost weight or if I had gained weight, which was always the case until, until my 30s. And that was really my work to do. And I talked to so many people because this is so loaded and it's so complex and they feel like, the ability to heal a relationship really hinges on the other person. My, I think the reason we got where we got is because I didn't expect anything from her. I wasn't looking for some grand apology. I wasn't looking for some big behavior change. I had to work through the shame. I had to work through what I was bringing to that relationship, which was this sense that it wasn't good enough and I was always going to be judged. And even after I lost over a hundred pounds and we were in a much better place, the first time I got pregnant, I had remnants of those thoughts of like, I know that I'm not just gaining baby weight, right? I was, I wasn't, and I'm, I'm eight plus months pregnant right now. I I've never been like the belly only like cute pregnant woman. <laughs> like I'm very <laughs> much a, you know, butt, hips, arms, face, pregnant experience. Mm-hmm. And the first time I was like, I wonder if my mom's going to judge me 
for that. But that's, that's my work. And I really had to get to a place on my own of what I eat, what I weigh, how I care for myself, what my goals are, my progress. It's for me. It's not for me to impress my mom. It's not for me to be accepted by my mom. It's not for me to be understood because she hasn't had my journey and I haven't had hers. You know, I have not had the experience and and maybe I'll feel differently in 20 years, but right now I haven't had the experience of raising an overweight child who was socially not accepted because of her weight, who was unhappy because of her weight. I haven't had the experience of worrying about health concerns for my child because of their weight or emotional and psychological concerns because of their relationship with food. So I can't, it's easy to say like what she did was wrong. I wouldn't have done it that way, but I haven't lived that experience. So I really don't know. And likewise, she hasn't lived my experience of being an overweight kid and teenager and young adult and having a parent who really wants you to be some way other than, than you are. And one of the most valuable lessons I've learned is that our perspective comes from our experience. And to expect that someone who doesn't share our experience is going to share our perspective is kind of lunacy. It's just, in my mind, not possible. And that emotional maturity and allowing for my mom's approach to be what it was. And, and if you've read Chasing Cupcakes, you understand that it wasn't just like she didn't like having a fat kid. I mean, there was some, some really messed up stuff that happened in response to my weight. But I just focused on me. And I believe that that's such a huge part of healing. I didn't expect change from my mom. She very well could take issue with my pregnancy weight gain or anything else. And that's just not my business, you know, because who knows in, in 30 years, I might have a kid who gains, uh, you know, more weight in their pregnancy than I think is great. And, and I might worry, or I might judge. You just don't know. Yeah. I really love the looking at it from each person's perspective and realizing that we don't understand each other's yeah. perspective. Even if we're as close as mother and daughter, we don't understand each other's perspective because completely, I mean, we might understand little bits about each other, of course, but we don't understand really what it's like to be in one person's situation when we're in the other person's situation. And we Um, can't expect them to know ours either. Yeah. I love this. The reason I wanted to ask is because obviously my work sitting with women and talking about relationship to food and body is so connected to our family dynamics and a lot around our moms actually. And it, you know, this story is common to a point different, of course, but like a lot of, I've heard this so many times from my clients that they're getting these messages from early on in their childhood And, you know, then they're creating a lot of different eating habits based on that shame and blame and this, you know, the back and forth, the restriction, the binging and all of those things, the hiding. And it's, it's definitely, you know, a prevalent issue in our culture, especially I think a couple generations back. um, You know, one of the things, one of the things that has helped me so much with that, like, I have no doubt that much of my disordered eating patterns came from the influence of my mom, right? That, that is, to me, that is just a truism. However, I'm not limited by that today. It doesn't matter that that was my first 20, 25 years, you know, until I was like truly, truly on my own. I'm not limited by that now. And I think there are a lot of people who really believe that where we've been confines us or limits our potential. And one of my big areas of growth is, and one of the areas I work with my clients on constantly is that can be very, very true, but it doesn't limit you today. And we can recognize this is where the influence came from, but we're free today and every day we're free in this moment and in any moment 
to show up differently and to build a new pattern because that pattern from our past was built. And it's not the only one that we are capable of building. And at some point, not saying this is easy, it is a process for everybody, but at some point we have to take ownership for our ability to build something new when we don't Mm -hmm. like what we built initially. I a hundred percent agree. That's where the power is actually. I mean, the power is really not expecting somebody else to change or for us to receive some other messaging or enough acknowledgement or what have you from the outside. I mean, really, when we really break it down, our power is from the inside out. Our power is in our response. Our power is in our choices. Our power is in our decisions. Um, And one thing that you mentioned a few minutes ago was that you really were able to see how food, a lot of times when people are struggling with their relationship to food and body for that matter, that there, there is often a lot going on under the surface. And one of the sort of things that I say a lot is that when we look at our relationship to food and body, we can use that as an entry point to so much deeper healing that really isn't about the food or the body, but those are the symptoms. Yeah. Um, So it's like an entry point for healing. And that's why when you mentioned moving into our thinking and our actions and our choices as some remedy for our situations is, you know, just absolutely a hundred percent aligned with what I do in my work all the time. So can you speak a little bit about that? Um, In your book, you talk a lot about getting your food choices under control as a way that you were able to amend some of your disordered eating and getting your finances under control. And I also love that these two issues were both brought to light in your book because they obviously have something in common. Um, And so can we speak to that a little bit? I remember I was, I was over 350 pounds and I'm only five foot five inches. So I'm not like 12 feet tall. 350 was far too much for, for my frame. And I had been obsessed with the pursuit of weight loss for as long as I could remember. And at one point I, I want to say I shifted gears, but truly my, the strongest desire of my heart was still to lose weight, but I put a lot of energy and effort into getting out of debt. I had recently got married. So I had student loans and we had car loans and my former husband had student loans and all of these things. And I thought we were making good money, but the paycheck every week was already spoken for when it hit the bank account. Like by the time we paid the mortgage and the utilities and the insurance and the car payments and the student loan payments and groceries, it it was just done. So I felt like we were working for our pasts and not for our present and not for our future. It drove me crazy. So I decided that we were going to like really, really get strict and get out of debt. And as we went through that process, I noticed where my thinking had been so off for so long. Like for example, when we were getting out of debt, there was not a single month that went according to plan. We're like, hey, look, I said, this is what we would bring in and this is what we would pay off and this is what we would have left. And it worked out perfectly because every month, whether it was like, oh crap, I forgot it was your grandmother's birthday. We need to get her something. Or, you know, we had a flat tire or the electric bill for some reason was twice what it was the month before. You name it, every month something came up, but never once did I say, well, screw it, I blew it, we'll start again next month. And yet when it came to food, I was operating that way all the time. Mm, And I started to see that's really not a food issue. That's a decision-making issue. That's a, that's a cognitive function issue. That's a processing and a perspective issue. And when I started to see little things like that, and there's a whole bunch of things like that, that I talk about in chasing cupcakes, but I was like, huh. This is why it had always bothered me that I could be super motivated in my career and in getting out of debt, but I wanted to lose weight so much more than I wanted to be good at my job and so much more than I wanted to get out of debt. Why was I not 
motivated in that area. Like I was the first person into work and I was often the last person to leave. And I worked on nights and weekends, even though nobody told me I had to. Why? Where was that discipline? Where was that drive in this area that meant more to me? Because if you had asked me what I wanted more than anything in the world, I would have said, I want to lose weight. But then an hour later, I would have gone to Cold Stone Creamery or Taco Bell, you know, and had 2,500 calories worth of, of a first dinner, you know? Mm-hmm. And I recognized that I thought about my work and I thought about my money very differently than I thought about food. So what I was so sure for so long was a I love to eat issue suddenly became a, an awareness that I just had really dysfunctional and, and truly dishonest patterns of thinking and decision-making in this one area. And it was being reflected in my choices. And Mm. to me was, was, it was exciting because if it was just a food issue, I didn't know how to deal with that. I had been failing in that approach from, you know, fourth grade, second grade for that matter. And when I realized I'm just not being very honest with myself as I make decisions here and I'm not being very logical. Well, if I wasn't being logical in my career, I would know how to fix that. If I wasn't being logical with my finances, I would know how to fix that. And it was truly, truly a turning point for me and my journey. And, and now is the foundation of the work that I do with my clients. Wow. What an interesting insight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, okay. So let's go into that for a second. What does that actually look like for you when you were able to notice that you were treating food so differently than you were treating other things? And then what came next after that realization? One of the biggest things that stands out to me is I stopped the kind of all or nothing grand plan approach to weight loss because I was one of those people that wanted the the latest, the greatest, the hottest plan, the stricter, the better, because I wanted to lose weight really, really fast. And I was constantly starting a new or a different diet and getting all psyched up. And this is the last time and then not following through, you know, whether it was a day, an hour, a week, or sometimes it was even a couple months. Those plans were, were just not working. And I could see that in my career and in my finances, it was just little chipping away, you know, never when I was getting out of debt, would I have said, well, $5 at target, you know, three days a week doesn't matter because what's 15,000, what's $15 a week when we have $130,000 in debt. I was looking for those little things. I was looking for the 350 at Starbucks. I was looking for all like I wanted any extra dollar I could get to put towards our debt. But when it came to food, I was like, well, if I've had one cookie, I might as well have seven. And you know what? Since I've now had seven cookies, I might as well order pizza and get it out of my system and start again tomorrow. I yeah. started to adopt the baby steps, really. I mean, as silly and stupid as that sounds, it was a profound change for me. And I talk a lot on my podcast about how at the time when I was at my heaviest, I was going to the Chick-fil-A drive-thru for breakfast every weekday morning. And I would get a chicken biscuit and chicken minis and hash browns and a large diet Coke. And instead of being like, no more Chick-fil-A, I'm doing egg white omelets and broccoli for breakfast and hot lemon water, I started saying, well, I'm going to get the chicken biscuit or the chicken minis and hash browns and a diet Coke. And I just started looking for, for inches. There's a movie called any given Sunday and it's with Al Pacino. It's a football movie. He's a coach. They're in the locker room and it's halftime and they're down by a few points. And he says in this like super impassioned speech, this is a game of inches and we win or we lose with inches. And I started shifting from thinking that only perfection was good enough to Mm. looking to win the tiniest moment, right? Even if that, honest to God, sometimes that was, I'd buy a pint of ice cream and I'd take one big scoop and put it down the garbage disposal 
and eat the rest. And that was an improvement for me because I wasn't eating the whole pint. Whereas before it would have been a, well, I had ice cream. So the day is shot. I might as well go get Taco Bell. And, right. and, and there were so many changes like that, but that was one that I started with that stopped me from being so absolutely dramatic about everything. I love that. It worked. (laughs) Well, it's interesting the word dramatic and that's like those big swings, those big all or nothing moments. And I love your baby steps. I talk a lot about baby steps and, you know, taking our time. One of my mantras is slow and steady. Yep. Because it just feels like we can make progress. I actually came up with that on my own while doing a big 14er hike with a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was similar to you, like wanting, you know, this summit, I wanted the summit and I was going to walk really fast. And then she was like, you might want to slow down. Like we've got, you know, like seven hours of this. (laughs) And it was such a great opportunity to see like slow and steady budget our energy And then it started to just show up all over my life where I was like, slow and steady, slow and steady, slow and steady. And it has become very integral to my work in in my own personal life. And it really seems like it matches what you're saying um, with your baby steps. And I love that. And also we don't get overwhelmed as much when we're taking slow and steady or baby steps. It's like, we can integrate our healing. We can integrate our process so much more fully when it's happening at a rate that is possible to digest for, we might as well use a metaphor of digest, right? And not only that, there's way more opportunities for small steps than for big steps. And there's this, um, right now there's this graphic going around on social media where there's two ladders against the same building. And one of them has a bunch of rungs and they're really close together. And the other one only has a few rungs and they're really far apart. Guarantee you're going to get to the top faster, even though on, on the ladder that has three times as many rungs, even though there's more of them because they're more doable, they're more feasible. And if we think about, we already know this, we just sometimes aren't thinking clearly enough to apply it in the area where we need it most. But if you think about your marriage, if you want to improve your marriage, not only is the grand gesture not super accessible, like every week you can't plan a surprise vacation and whisk your spouse (laughs) off to like something, not only is that not as accessible, but if the little things aren't in order, then the grand gestures don't mean crap. So the little things in your marriage are not only more impactful, they're also more accessible. So you can do them more often and make progress much more quickly. And it, for me, was just this awareness that I was just thinking about it poorly. I was not being logical. I knew that all or nothing thinking was not working, but that was sort of the extent of it. I hadn't really convinced myself that the little things were the way, the smart way, the faster way. I thought that they were too small to make a difference until I started really becoming a better thinker about it. And then I realized that's not true at all. I love it. And I love that it's like the realization what happened in one way, and then you started to get the other pieces of it over time. And yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that came up for me when you were talking is when we want to change something about ourselves or our lives that aren't working, it can feel really desperate, right? We can yep. feel desperate and we, we are also maybe not patient yep. because we're like, please, 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 I want to make this change. And yeah, the interesting thing is to make, in my opinion, long-term change, sustainable change which is really hard yeah. is being able to cultivate patience and being yeah. able to do it from a place of lovingness instead of body hate or yeah. judgment, self-criticism, right? It's like, those things aren't really that healing. They're more like destructive. And 
So I absolutely love, love what you've discovered and what you've learned in the process. And I'm so glad you're able to share that with people because people need this, right? It's like, there is, I mean, food and body, as I've been doing more and more research and really looking at the statistics out there recently, you know, it is such an epidemic. It is crazy how many people are struggling with this in the world. And one of the pieces that I wanted to talk to you about was that you talk a lot about how people get stuck in their story. Mm-hmm. It seems like a good place to go from here because we, you know, our stories are so ingrained in our heads and, you know, we've got many of them running throughout our lives. Um, changing our story is something that I've been really behind for years. I had to do a lot of self-repair post-divorce and that was like, my story for a long time had a lot to do with being divorced and being a single mom. And it really got old. Like I I started to get sick of hearing myself talk about it. Yeah. And I was like, I got to change the story. And, you know, there's lots of theories out there. There's lots of sort of methodology out there, but I'd like to just preface it with also changing our story is not a snap of a finger either. No. uh, In my experience. How, how, like, what are some of the things that you teach people to help them realize that they can change their story and that they can change their patterns? I think it's like one of the most challenging parts of being a human. (laughs) Yeah. You know, what I have found is that a lot of people have an either conscious or subconscious reluctance to this idea or practice of changing your story because they they're like, but it, but it's true, <laughs> right? right. If, Absolutely. If I were to look at, you know, my first 30 plus years with food, I was an emotional eater. So how are you, how are you telling me that I'm supposed to think something else when I, I have been, that's all I have been. That's the only experience I have, or I am overweight. That is the experience that I have. And what I like to remind people of is changing your story doesn't mean that your past is not true. It does not mean that your past doesn't have an impact on the way that you think or the way that you behave. It does. It is real. It is impactful. It is true, but it's not the only version of the truth. So for me, it was like, I have been an emotional eater, but I'm capable of not emotionally eating today. Or I'm capable of turning to food less today than I did yesterday. I'm capable of something different. Where we've been doesn't dictate where we can go. Mm-hmm. And so when, when I talk to my clients about changing the story, it doesn't mean changing their perception of their past you can think about that however you want to. When I talk to people about changing their story, it is about changing their focus from the past to the present. Yes. And in the present, you're not limited by how things have been. And one of the mantras that I use in my life, I use with my clients is don't let how you feel about the problem shadow what you can do about the solution or don't let how you feel about the past get in the way of what you can do in the present. And that's the whole reason really that we even talk about changing your story is because it's become a barrier to doing things differently. You have taken historical events and your feelings about them and you've con- you've sort of confused them with your identity. I have been someone in the past who turned to food in response to emotion, but I am not an emotional eater. I am whatever I choose to be today. And I can choose any number of things, even if it's for the first time. So we talk about changing the story because what we want to see people do is no longer limit what might happen today or tomorrow based on what happened yesterday. And that is the conversation that we have. I'm not saying deny where you've been or your patterns or your choices. And I'm not saying 
identify with something that's totally new to you that doesn't feel like who you are. What I'm saying is claim what you want for today and practice that and choose that instead of continuing this fixation on the past. Absolutely. Another thing that comes to mind is like, when we have this identity, like let's say for your example, I'm an emotional eater, or for my example, I'm a struggling single mom, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, when my kids were very little, like 20 years ago, I also found that, and I see this in my clients still today around food, we can also overly lean on that as our identity, which can also become like an automatic excuse. Yep. And then we're, anytime we're challenged to push ourselves through something, we can fall back on this automatic excuse, which isn't helping us, but it's giving us like an out where we don't have to take responsibility for the situation. Right. And so step up into our potential because it's scary and it's unknown and it might be hard and it might make us uncomfortable. So I really love how you said, I used to eat emotionally because that's true. Mm -hmm. And I'm not an emotional eater today. Right. I'm, I'm whatever I choose to be today. Yeah, that's you a know, really. Like I could be cold and distant from my husband for the last five years, but I'm. I can decide to be warm today. There's nothing about being cold and distant for the past five years that keeps me from being warm today. If I want to be warm today, right? The limitation okay, so- is our fixation on the past pattern, and when we're paying attention to it, what we're not paying attention to is all the other options. Absolutely. Which brings me to my very next point that I wanted to talk to you about, which is something that you say, every choice is a chance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where do you think people go wrong most frequently when it comes to decision-making or what is one way that you can, you know, kind of boost up decision-making for, for yourself or for, you know, teaching other people how to do that. I I love that people are looking backwards. Yeah. I think most people are so distracted by their analysis of the past or their judgment of the past that they're not giving nearly enough attention to what they can do right now. And I'm, I'm ruthless with my clients when they lead with the past or the problem. It is epidemic. We don't even recognize how often we lead with the past or we lead with the problem. Like, oh, I was doing so well, but last night, da, 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 da. No, no, no. If you're getting to, you want to do better, that's where we need to start. The improvement I'm going to make today is stop giving so much energy to the past and the problem. It's kind of like, and I think I give this example in Chasing Cupcakes, if If you're heating your house because it's the dead of winter, but you've got windows open upstairs, it's never going to warm up. And that's how our minds feel when we're giving away all of our energy, all of our time, all of our attention that could go to the solution. We're giving it all to the past and to the problem, and we don't even recognize that we're doing it. So when I say that every choice is a chance, I don't want the history of your problem. I don't want all your feelings about the past. I want to know how you're going to win the moment you're in. Hmm. It's like very, um, it's like cheering people on moving in a positive forward direction. And I I love that. And it, I, I just see it all the time, how we get so attached to looking back and also just looking back and criticizing or even dissecting what we did wrong. Yeah. Cause we want to be just like for a lot of people, they lead with that stuff because they think the context is necessary because they want to be understood more than they want to change. And Hey, I love therapy. I think it's important. Get yourself a therapist. But when we're talking about creating change, We have to realize that we have a finite amount of energy and attention. So break the addiction to talking about the past, break the addiction to talking about the problem. And you're going to find that suddenly change doesn't feel so hard 
because you have 10 times more energy because you're not giving it all away to how you feel about the problem, what you did yesterday, the pattern of behavior of the last five years. Just stop, divorce the pattern of talking about the problem. Yes, love it. I so agree. Um, it's such a good opportunity to acknowledge that this extra bit of energy can be used for good. Yeah. And I love the analogy of the open windows upstairs, but it is to me also like, if I was thinking of, I've heard this talked about a lot, like energy leaks, right? So the windows upstairs being open is an energy leak. Mm -hmm. Talking about our past to the point where we have a depletion and we're coming from a victim mentality. And I, I don't want to diminish that some people have had very traumatic pasts and in certain situations have absolutely been victims of horrible things. Um, so without, you know, overriding that, just acknowledging that we also can make positive change from a place of empowerment, looking forward with the energy that we have freed up in all of this backpedaling we've been doing. Yeah. I think there's tons of merit to diving into and processing past experiences with a qualified professional. But yeah. when I'm talking, like when I'm working with my clients, it's, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. I don't operate in that capacity. You want to change. Okay. This is where we start. And it's a cycle where we lead with the past and we lead with the problem because we we can get the same sense of fulfillment from understanding our behavior as we can from changing our behavior. And it's a distraction. It's not a distraction if you're working with your therapist, right? Like go do that work if you need to do that work. But I tell my clients all the time, you don't need a PhD in the psychology of the problem in order to create change. You don't. So which right. are you trying to do? Do you really want to understand the problem? In which case, I'm not your girl. Or do you want to change the pattern? Yeah. So what is something you would tell people who are listening? If they're starting and they're hearing this podcast, they're like inspired to move forward with some momentum and they want to make better decisions. Oh, better decisions. I would say begin to slow down your decision-making process, right? I, I talk about this a lot in Chasing Cupcakes and I use questions as a tool here because what happens oftentimes when we're, when we're trying to be better decision-makers is we're just used to running on autopilot and these decisions happen so fast. It's only after the fact that we're like, Ah, I see what I did there. Slowing down a little bit. I got some advice. Um, a few years ago, we moved into this old farmhouse. It was built in 1707. And I was talking to somebody about some of my ideas for renovating it. And the guy said to me, that's a good idea, but never go with your first idea. And if you're somebody who's looking to make better decisions, just give enough space for your own second opinion to show up, for your own third opinion to show up. Because so many times we just go with that, I'm too tired, it doesn't matter, I don't really care, I'll start tomorrow. But that's thought one. That's the default track. That's the most practiced pattern. I know you are capable of a higher level thought, a different belief, a second opinion. You just have to start demanding that of yourself. And, you know, if you got a diagnosis that scared the heck out of you, most of us would go get a second opinion because the mm -hmm. stakes are high, right? Mm -hmm. But when it comes to our own decision-making, I think we just roll with it because we don't perceive the stakes to be really high. If we order the pizza, if we eat the ice cream, if we skip the workout, if we spend the money that we didn't plan to spend. But honestly, I don't think there are any higher stakes than the ones that directly relate to our own self-care. I really believe, and you and I were chatting about this before we hit record. So just about a year ago, my daughter died very suddenly 
unexpectedly, tragically, mm-hmm. worst year of my life by so- far. In the time since then, I just have this conviction that my number one job is not author, is not host of the Primal Potential podcast. My number one job is taking care of my physical and emotional health, which means that those decisions that I used to say, it's just one thing, it's too small to make a difference. They're actually the most important decisions I make because everything else I do as a wife, as a mom, as a business owner, as everything, it all taps that, like what I create through my self-care. So if you're willing to get a second opinion on a diagnosis, wait for your own second opinion on the workout, on the dessert, on the spending, on the words you say to your partner, because those small things are the things that shape our lives. So give a little space for your own second opinion. I love it. Sometimes they say the power is in the pause. Mm -hmm. And I think that so many times we're just moving through life so fast. We don't pause. Yeah. It just, all of a sudden, everything is coming from automatic and reaction and it really changes the outcome. It really changes the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of self-care, And you working through, obviously, like this year, I'm sure has been just intense in thousands of different ways. Mm -hmm. And um, how does your self-care fit into that? Like, how are you able to tend to yourself through it all? And what do you teach your clients about self-care? In the last year for me, my mantra has been, that the grief with can ride with me, but it can't drive because when I, when I was in the first few weeks after our daughter died, like I didn't care about anything, you know, everything I had cared about for years before I just did, it just didn't matter. Nothing mattered. And I knew that that was grief, right? I, I, I have lost a parent tragically. Like I've been through loss before nothing like, you know, the death of a child, but I knew that that was a result of grief because I cared before and then she died and then I didn't care. And so I would just very gently remind myself, like the grief doesn't have to go away. We don't have to get over this. We don't have to get through this. I might not, I think I will never get over it. I think I will never get through it, but it can't drive. It can't make the decisions. So I can feel that. I don't care how I eat. I don't care if I work out. I don't care if I lose the baby weight, anything, but that's not going to make the decisions. And that has been really the center point of my self-care. I don't want to meditate. Okay. That feeling is grief. It can ride. It can come. I cannot want to meditate through the whole meditation, but it's not going to drive. It's not going to make the decisions. And I use that with food, with supplementation, with doctor's appointments, all of it. And I really take a very similar approach with my clients. Number one, we focus on very small changes. Like what are you willing to do today? Don't tell me what you're not willing to do. Don't tell me what feels too hard or too big. Tell me what you are willing to do today. And then let's not let the feelings get in the way of the deciding. The feeling is valid. It's fine. We're not trying to push it away. I am not trying to pretty up my grief or put it aside or make it smaller, but it's not what makes my decisions. And so with my clients, you can be stressed about work. That's fine. But that doesn't make your dinner decision or your workout decision, you know? And it's just been a very helpful tool for all of us. Mm, Well, obviously you've put that to the test in a way that's one of the most challenging things people can go through, right? Losing a child is considered the most traumatizing of traumas in so many ways. And so if you are able to use that in a positive way for your own self-care and your own healing, I mean, that's just has so much merit to it. And my heart just really pours out to you. Thank you. It's, it's a, I'm, I'm so happy to hear you sharing your story. And also I just want to, you know, tell you that I'm sure it's still fairly raw and vulnerable in many ways, not that long ago. Yeah. Um, tell me, 
you know, how people can find more out about your work and learn more from you, your podcast, Primal Potential, I'm sure we can um, subscribe, correct? Yep. Yep. That's probably the easiest, fastest place to go. The podcast is on Apple Podcasts, uh, iTunes, or that's the same thing, (laughs) iHeartRadio, Spotify, (laughs) Stitcher, all those places. It's called Primal Potential. We've got 900 or so episodes up for for everybody to listen to. Um, And then primalpotential.com or connect with me on Instagram. That's where I kind of spend the most time and respond to people at Elizabeth Benton over on Instagram. Thank you so much. And Chasing Cupcakes is available on Amazon. Yeah, great. Um, Elizabeth, it is just such a pleasure to meet you and hear your solidness and your voice. And I just feel like, you know, you bring such a confident and strong mission to, to your work. And it's so beautiful to have your story as inspiration for others. And well, I just- Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to share it. It honestly means a lot to me. Oh, well, it means a lot to me to have you on the podcast and I so appreciate you and all you bring. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of Satiate. Sending you my wholehearted wish for your health and happiness. And I will see you back here 